Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello, and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Back in 2011, the British government admitted to removing thousands of files from the administrative offices of its 37 former colonies. What prompted that revelation was legal action by five survivors of Kenya's Mau Mau rebellion. Among the files removed from Kenya was documentation of the abuse they had suffered at the hands of British forces, documents that the British government initially denied existed. What the case made clear was that removing documents containing anything that might be construed as remotely inflammatory was the rule, not the exception, a routine element of Britain's decolonizing process. Those revelations have given rise to a new scholarly literature on so-called migrated archives. That literature is the point of departure for two articles in the latest issue of History Workshop Journal. John Puccini's piece, Thinking in Papua New Guinean Terms, The Sensitive Case Files of 1972 and Australia's Migrated Archive, explores the contrasting story of the decolonizing process in Papua New Guinea, where an attempt by former colonial governors in Australia to remove archives containing what were deemed sensitive materials was met with fierce opposition in Papua New Guinea itself. Rose Mayunga's article, We Kept Them to Remember, Tin Trunk Archives and the Emotional History of the Mau Mau War, looks at the oral and material memories held by Kenya's Mau Mau survivors who have countered the British government's erasure of a brutal and traumatic history with their own personal archives of resistance. Together, these two articles ask critical questions about what makes for an archive, what archives are for, and the relation between archival practice and the making of historical knowledge. For our final episode in 2023, I sat down with John Puccini and Rose Mayunga to talk about their two articles, the points of connection, the points of contrast, and where discussions of decolonizing archives can lead. So thank you both for taking time to be here. And I wonder if you could each introduce yourself and talk briefly just about what your your research is and, and the article that you've got in the new issue of History Workshop. Rose, do you want to start? Hello, my name is Rose Myonga. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Warwick. And my current research looks at histories and memories of the Mau Mau War in post-independence Kenya. I'm really interested in how people preserve their histories and preserve histories that don't enter the public record. So they're making sense of, of the past outside of public history. And that's really the exploration of the article. So I explore those ideas in the context of the so-called migrated archive. So since 2011, when the migrated archive uh, was declassified, much of the literature on the Mau Mau War has centred around those colonial records that were stolen from Kenya and were declassified subsequently just 
about a decade ago. So I was interested in how survivors of the war were remembering the war without or sometimes even in spite of those records. And the article is based on my PhD research and is kind of the product of something I was genuinely surprised by. I started off as an oral historian focusing on an oral history project. Um, and I was looking to the grassroots to kind of counter the idea of public silence about Mau Mau. And what I found was that these oral histories have been preserved and accompanied by a material archive. So in a way that's entirely natural and that's really familiar to all of us, people have grounded their memories in a material archive. And in the article, I look at some examples of this um, and I call them tin trunk archives, which I take from Karen Barber's work, who works on tin trunk literacy in Madagascar. And I, yeah, I basically use these tin trunk archives to make an argument for thinking more expansively about what archives can be and how personal materials and oral histories can speak into the gap left behind by the stolen colonial archive. And John. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Rose. I really enjoyed reading your article. Just wanted to say, you can edit, edit around that. But it was really, <laughs> no, I really, that really in. <laughs> it kind of popped out at me as I was kind of watching the articles kind of filter through. I saw yours and was like, oh, this is great. This is a good, there's, you know, another piece kind of on archives. So it's kind of interesting. Anyway, I'll cut to what I'm supposed to be saying. So I'm John Pacini. I'm senior lecturer in history at Australian Catholic University up in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. So we are on the lands of the Yagara and Turrbal peoples, unceded uh, indigenous land. And the work that I have put forward, History Workshop Journal, is around kind of, I guess, in a way, it's a, a bit of a boring or mundane story. It's actually a very bureaucratic story about migrated archives and trying to look at examples of the migrated archive outside of this story that we've developed over the last as Rose was saying, over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of interest in the migrated archive that Britain removed from all of its colonial outposts all over the world. And I kind of stumbled upon this Australian example of when Australia is decolonizing its largest overseas colony of Papua New Guinea, where there's a moment out of nowhere, seemingly, where the government decides that they want to remove all of these records and to, you know, maintain, as far as they're concerned, to maintain their own record of their period of colonial administration. But of course, that's viewed very differently by other parties involved. So I guess what I thought was most interesting about this case as I slowly kind of unraveled it uh, in a way we can, can talk about more was, you know, that it, it, it starts off as this kind of very bureaucratic kind of motion, but then it mobilizes a whole bunch of different sympathies from expatriate Australian librarians and archivists in Papua New Guinea itself to then, of course, you know, emerging Papua New Guinea and nationalist elites who are going to end up ruling the colony, who all gravitate to this question of the, of potential archival removal as a way of challenging or legitimating themselves, challenging Australian rule and legitimating themselves in different ways. But it's also the only case I can find where activism on the ground stops removals. I might be wrong on that, but to my knowledge, I, I haven't located any example of where archivists, academics, politicians jump up and down about it and manage to stop a removal of records, a migration, so-called of records. So that's kind of what's interesting to it from my perspective. That's great. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about 
this morning was, and in fact, Rose has already used the phrase that looking at the grassroots, because in a way you're both doing it. It's just sort of a different patch of grass in each, in each case, not just a different country, but kind of a different level of players. But it is in both cases about kind of reclaiming or, or taking hold of the act of history making, knowledge production, memory making. And, and I guess what I wondered is really how for each of you, you know, your, your starting point in this research, did, it, did you begin with this interest in archives and archiving and how did that shape how you went about your explorations? Yeah, so my initial approach when I heard about the Migrated Archive, I'd already sort of understood some of the history of the Mau Mau War, having grown up in Kenya and having a Kikuyu stepfather. And when I heard the story of the Migrated Archive, my initial approach was to kind of circumvent the whole mess. And I saw this kind of archival crisis as in a way an opportunity to decenter the archive or the sort of the official archive in how I looked at record keeping and thought about how people remembered the past. So I was actually initially thinking about archives, but it, but in quite a negative way. And I was really resistant to actually ga- engage with the materials themselves. I had this sort of strong gut reaction that the, the material was so tainted and fragmentary that it could never really tell a story. But what I think is really interesting and sort of working a bit with with the archive itself and working about it a lot, um, and I think this also comes through really really well in in your article, John. Is the the story that the archive really can tell is the story about imperialism and how it works through bureaucracy and how the archive becomes a way to kind of uphold imperial designs. No, that's 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 really interesting, Rose. I mean, from the perspective, I guess of. of how I got into this, I'm a fairly traditional history of dusty boxes and, you know, increasingly digitised archives, of course. Um, in Australia, we've got a, a really great, there's a large array of digitised sources that historians access on the Trove database and also government databases. There's a lot of historical material available. But the way that I came into this, I was interested in the question of how does Australia fit in the picture of decolonization? The emerging picture of decolonization as a dominion, as a British dominion. Kind of the story traditionally about Australia is that, you know, it's a white dominion, which doesn't really change that much, I guess, from being, you know, a, a British possession to now, where effectively we still maintain a lot of the structures of British imperialism uh, and the British Empire. And we've reinvented ourselves somewhat as, you know, independent people, but not, but not really. And the question I wanted to ask is, well, how does it, because I already found lots of evidence of Australians, but I did research about the Vietnam War, so Australians thinking, well, what is Australia's relationship to the question of Asia and Vietnam? And then when I started to look a bit more at decolonization, I thought that really occurred to me, the importance of Papua New Guinea as a colony to Australia. It's something that we don't think about an awful lot in Australia, that Papua New Guinea was actually our colony. It was first incorporated as a territory in the 1900s and then we acquired the northern part of of, of Papua, Mon Papua New Guinea which was a German protectorate after the first world war 
And then these were ruled by Australia for, for decades afterwards and tens of thousands of white settler Australians went to Papua New Guinea to work to do very similar, I think, situation to what goes on in, in Kenya, where you've got a, a large um, white expatriate workforce, you know. But in a way that in Britain, I get the feeling that there's a lot of kind of memory of empire. So in Australia, the fact that Papua New Guinea was an imperial possession is almost entirely forgotten. So that was kind of what got me into this. I was thinking about it and then just stumbled upon reference of Nancy Lutton, this archivist, you know, who saved the records in 72. And I'm like, what records? What are you talking about? So, you know, led to this kind of very interesting then um, rabbit hole for me, a productive rabbit hole, but a rabbit hole nonetheless that kind of led to this article. Yeah, I also, reading your article, really had a restored sense of faith in the archivists of the past. <laughs> That's um, really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I never, as I said, you know, she's an unlikely activist, and she was, I think, you know, Nancy Lutton is, a, you know, Australians, white Australian settler, born in the 1930s, she does all the normal things, she goes to Britain, she spends a bit of time in America, trains in a profession, as you do when you're a middle-class person, you know, middle-class white person, but then has this real interest in Papua, Papua and in the Pacific that she develops from the 1960s on and then ends up kind of in, as a lot of Australians did, ended up in PNG at the time of decolonization. And interestingly, then were faced with choices, <laughs> a choices to what side they were on. Were they on the side of the Australians who wanted to make themselves look good as they departed? Or were they on the side as as Nancy Lutton saw it, of the, of the, of the Papua New Guineans, you know, and part of that, you know, we can talk about that more, but part of it relates, I think, to changes in archival practice in the 70s as well, and to the ideas of archival integrity that are emerging as well, as well as critiques of the professions, I think, too. But yeah, I, I too was like kind of, I never really was particularly interested in librarians before, sorry for any librarians listening, but <laughs> it certainly made me Certainly, maybe aware of the radical nature of the librarian of the librarian trade. I think, maybe. I mean, one one of the things that you you pointed out this in an email, John, that that was very striking in in both papers is the role of women as kind of I mean whatever you want to call it. I, I don't really like the word custodians, but that's the word that is popping into mind. But as protectors, as but also as creators of a particular sense of the past or a particular response to the past. And uh, I wondered if we could talk a bit about that. I mean, it, it kind of goes in different directions in both of your pieces because the women are differently situated and the records are, that we're talking about are, 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 are very different. But it's a very striking affinity between the two stories that you tell. Yeah. That's what I've, I rose. I thought that was so interesting. Yes, yeah, so I'd like to hear your, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think within Kikuyu culture, which is the the culture of, of the people who are most affected by the Mau Mau War, women are really central to the oral storytelling tradition. So, you know, it's like the grandchildren sit around the fire with the grandmother and hear the stories. So there is this like ongoing tradition of, of an oral culture that, that is held by women. Um, and I think that was that was part of the reason that I ended up talking to mostly women in my interviews. I didn't really set out to only talk to women or to mainly talk to women. It was, but it was it it seemed to be that I was directed towards 
the sort of senior women in communities frequently in a way that was quite natural. And I think specifically to sort of delve into into the specifics of of the circumstances of the Mau Mau War, women often stayed more still or were moved around less. Women were often forcibly removed during the Mau Mau War to one fortified village like the one that I describe in my article, with exceptions, you know, some people, some women who were sort of considered more hardcore in the Mau Mau movement were taken to prison in the same way as men. And some women went to the forest as guerrilla fighters. But oftentimes women were sort of sent to one fortified village and then stayed there for for up to about eight years. And conversely, men were more likely to be going to the forest as guerrilla fighters. And then if they were captured, they were moved through a series of different detention camps. So they were sort of moving around more and less able to hold on to possessions and onto the threads of a, of a specific location and the story of that specific location. And also women during the Mama War, one of their main roles was as intelligence. So they were the people who were kind of bringing messages between the villagers and the fighters in the forest. So they were often privy to sort of more information than any individual man. Yeah, it, it's interesting also because thinking about gender in this in this article i was thinking about kind of the the different kinds of literacy so mm-hmm. men were more likely to be tapped into um forms of written record keeping uh writing petitions or kind of engaging with the government about their experiences whereas women often didn't read and write and hadn't had that education so it was more photographs or songs or oral histories that kind of became their archive of evidence. Yeah, that's what I liked about the article, Rose, was, yeah, the way that the women were, in a way, where custodian does spring to mind as in Mary Beth, you know, the way that the women, you know, keeping these, these tin trunks, these, uh, I imagine they're like ammunition boxes or whatnot that they keep under beds and, and whatnot. This is just so interesting and very much the opposite of the kind of archive that um, is the concern of the article that I'm that I've written but I think it's something about care I think that cuts across both articles because in the PNG context it's you know Nancy Lutton the Australian secretary of the Library Association and um, Elizabeth Solano another Australian expatriate librarian who are the key motivators the key uh, organizers of the campaign to stop the uh, removal of the quote sensitive files so they're the ones who are writing the petitions they're the ones who are doing a lot of the lobbying work they're the leadership of the Papua New Guinea branch of the Library Association and the kind of way that they articulate these demands which is in their demands for the records to be maintained they're articulating it in a language of archival integrity that you need to keep the records in place that they need to be able to be accessible to everyone but also in this kind of, I think, very gendered in the way that the professions are gendered, right? Is that there's a particular ideal of care, of empathy that is articulated in particularly professions like librarianship, as well as you might say teaching and nursing and others, where you've got a, there's a kind of a caring responsibility that's imbued into the gendered ideology of that particular profession. I think that comes through in the in the way that the I guess the moral or empathetic ideas that are expressed by the um, the woman, the women in leadership of the PNG branch versus then the, the, the male-led National Library Association who are not so much concerned about the moral issues of 
should we steal these records or not? But their concern is that they want to make sure that people doing the removals are properly accredited as librarians that they've signed all the paperwork, you know? So yeah, it's a really interesting, I think, kind of gendered tension within the um, within the campaign, yeah. Is, I mean, I don't know if I can articulate this right, but maybe this thread of professionalism that links mm. the story that you're telling with the story of the archival removals in Kenya. Mm. I mean, it does seem like professionalism was working in very different directions. And is that an indication of change within the profession, of, of a dialogue within the profession, of a controversies mm. within the profession over this? Or is this, you know, is it a gendered thing as well? Yeah, no, I mean... I- I'll, I'll just drop a, a plug for my, my wonderful colleague, Hannah Forsyth, who's just written a book all about the professionals and the way that the professional class changes across the Anglo world. It's just been published with CUP. She makes this argument that the 1970s poses a moral crisis for the professions, not just for librarianship, but across all the professions, really, that they're faced with the reality of decolonization that asks difficult questions of them. It says, you know, well, what is the role of teachers in supporting racist educational policies? What is the position of engineers in creating unlivable environments that are increasingly being rendered unhabitable by the environment, for instance? But in the in this librarian case, I think what and the emergence of ideas of archival integrity seems to fit within that notion of it's not so maybe not so much a direct awareness of you know we're doing the wrong thing by migrating these archives but certainly there's an increasing awareness of that the archive is not just a possession of the government but that the people who are represented in the archive should also have a say in that and this is articulated well I think in, in what um, Elizabeth Solano the head of the Papua New Guinea Library Association says that if the records are made in Papua New Guinea, then they're more the property of Papua New Guinea than they are of Australia, despite the fact that it was Australian bureaucrats who made those records, that those should belong to PNG. It was a moral claim rather than a claim that relied on normative legal framing, you might say. Yeah, that's re- it's really interesting because in Kenya, it's almost the converse where the theft and destruction of archives is so distinctly unprofessional and so racialized Mm. as well. So basically Mm. all these sensitive documents are deemed for white eyes only. And when they're making the decisions about what to destroy, what to leave and what to migrate, Mm. only white people are allowed to participate in that process. But because there's such a massive stock of documents they don't have the workforce to actually um to actually deal with with all the material so the wives of administrators are brought in even though there are uh, there are at this point um there have been processes of africanization in in all the departments so there are sort of professionally trained black african archival workers who would be much much more able to make informed decisions about this material but but because of the racialized nature of the removals it falls to sort of white non-professionals rather than black professionals. That's really fascinating because, yeah, I mean, I think, and not to say that, you know, the professionals swap in the 1970s from being, you know, arbiters and enforcers of empire to its critics uniformly. That's clearly not, that's clearly not the, not the case, but there's definitely kind of a radical tinge that seems to emerge, a radical nature that seems to emerge among some aspects of the professionals, of the professions. But, yeah, absolutely. The um, I was kind of reading some of that stuff about the archive and the where they the ridiculous methods they went to stop people of color from touching the records. Even it's just this 
is, is, is truly remarkable. Yeah, and it's 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 really interesting because there's this, this strange mix of like extreme sensitivity and also kind of recklessness. Mm. Where like in Kenya, because of the sheer volume of the documents, they couldn't burn them fast enough, so they start dumping them in the sea. But they're still really protective over who's who's able to see them, and all the language is about sensitivity. This comes through so well in your article, actually. It's all about security and sensitivity. We found that really fascinating. I mean, it's it's such interesting language too, because I guess this takes us into one of the topics that you both kind of flagged up to to explore, which is about meaning, meaning slash emotion attached to these different sorts of records and these different sorts of sources, documents, whatever word you want to want to use. And Rose, your paper is very much explicitly about the the role of emotion or the kind of the the impact of emotion and the 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 way that emotion suffuses the material that you're looking at and it, it strikes me that with the story John is telling that that's that's true in a different sort of way that there are these emotions feeding into the campaign that is being waged to keep these documents in the hands of Papua New Guineans so I wondered if we could if you want to talk a bit about that about meaning emotion and how that shapes these processes I just want to kind of just quickly respond to what Rose was saying before, because it's it is remarkable just like the Australians passed over responsibility for archives to as you they're Papua New Guineanizing the public service in the early 1970s because the UN's banking them do it you know the UN's like move quickly on this and they has passed over the responsibility of archives without seeming to be aware that they've done it and then realize about a year later that they've made a huge mistake and, and they need to get all the records back and that's it does connect then to this question of emotion because it becomes after the visit of there's people who read the article there's a the British visit by a senior a foreign commonwealth office official to Canberra in late 1971 and they basically tell the Australian government that they need to pull out the records as fast as they can because you need to make sure that you secure the records and keep all the sensitive files away from the nationalist elites who are going to come to power and, and maybe be a threat. And this sets off, you know, a significant fear amongst the Department of, it's called the Department of External Territories at this point. The department name gets changed quite a bit, which is a bit annoying when trying to find things in the archive. But, um, it is, it is incredibly emotional registered, not just from the protesters, but from the government, because it's the government is very possessive. They realize, oh, well, we've, we've, we've left these records fall into, into the wrong hands, as they see it, and now we need to get them back, whether the law is on our side or not, which is just one of those amazing kind of bureaucratic slips that you find in the archive sometimes, as you, you find, you know. And uh, Laura Stoller's work on the archive, on the colonial archive, is that we should analyze what's in the archive, but also kind of how the archive is made how the archive is controlled and i think this is a really interesting way of doing that because we can see here they're talking about you know, it's archives of people talking about archives <laughs> they're, they're talking about how do we look after, how do we protect how do we you know these are ours they feel this possessiveness of the paper trail that they've created in png despite seemingly not caring about it to a great degree about two minutes before to the point where there were just records everywhere there's records in shipping containers just like or just records that were just unusable they weren't being looked after very well, but then they just decide at the last minute, oh, we actually really want to keep these records now. We're going to launch a covert plan to get them to keep them. 
it's very odd, but it is incredibly emotional, I think, in terms of of the way that they feel this possessiveness and this real desire to control the narrative. It's kind of like the Operation Legacy thing in the British in the British context, right? They want to maintain the view of Australia as a good colonizer. And the way you do that is by making sure that the records suit the narrative that you want to tell. Yeah, absolutely. In the British case, it's the same. The language in the correspondence around these archival destructions and removals are just full of emotions. They're like dripping in the concerns, anxieties about the threat mm. of the material. And yeah, it's all about sort of where how they might be misused or how they might fall into the wrong hands, essentially people who might seek to sully the good image of the British Empire or people who might seek justice for the atrocities of the colonial state. And then I guess to counter that in in the research that I've been doing that appears in my article, I think about pride, but I think about it in a very different way to the kind of imperial pride or nostalgia we might think about, because it's a pride about preserving a history in spite of the Im- immense pressures to forget the past. And there's also tremendous care to this work, as as you've highlighted, John, um, that idea of care is really, really important. You know, this isn't coincidental that a tiny scrap of paper has survived in someone's small home for for the last 60 years. You know, that takes a lot of care. And, you know, these items are, as I kind of front in the article, these items that are really emotional. You know, they evoke emotions when people when people talk about them. They say, you know, I see this and it makes me feel sad or I look at this and it reminds me of the pain I felt. But also there's a sort of pride and defiance in preserving those those items. Yeah. And then also th- I've, I've, I was also just thinking when you were talking about the work of the archivists and thinking about the work of Kenyan archivists after independence and kind of the care that they've taken and sort of their own sense of duty. So specifically... Um, you see it in the work of Nathan Njama, who who was an archivist in Kenya for many years and is also an archival scholar. And he's been campaigning tirelessly for the return of these stolen documents to Kenya and has this really strong sense of duty and commitment to the ethics of the profession. That's kind of in a way like Nancy Lutton calling for the justice and uh, the repatriation of those documents. I mean, maybe this is an unknowable thing and very specific sort of question, but you both raise a question about the line between, or the slippage between official and personal archives in in both of these stories. And I did I did wonder, Rose, what happens to the tin trunk archives in the long term? Is there any kind of impetus or movement to translate those personal archives into some kind of official record or to to kind of begin to blur the line between the two? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that I'm thinking about as kind of a question about the afterlife of my own research, because in a way I've, I've been a part of a sort of preserving through the written word. And I have some photographs as well. But within local communities, there have been various sort of heritage projects that have tried to gather people's personal collections and hold them in a kind of museum context, but but in a community museum context, so, so um, much more collaborative. And there have also been digital heritage projects trying to record 
some of the histories that that official documents have kind of left out. Uh, but it's still a really big question. And it's something that feels really emergent now because this is sort of the end of this generation. So the people who were eyewitnesses to the Mau Mau are now in their 90s, in their hundreds. So it feels really pertinent to be actively thinking about how to preserve these memories and these items. Um, because, you know, so it's it's not a given that that the next generation will kind of have the same emotional attachment to these things or even know what they are. Um, you know, it was often the case when I was interviewing that other family members would be present and would say, oh God, I didn't, I never knew that or I'd never seen that or, you know, we we went to sort of the site of a a former detention camp and the the daughter of the person that I was uh, interviewing who was showing us around had hadn't ever been there before even though it was really close to where they lived so so it is is a really pertinent question to think about how we preserve that material and that knowledge and how we do so in a way that empowers the people who really have have created and held it yeah, I found it so interesting, even the way that you interviewed a number of women who uh, were, you know, maybe married to to a Mau Mau fighters and they had those collections kind of under their beds or whatnot. And then you went to the, the house of the school teacher. Uh, the, he was in like a formerly white-owned house, which I think was a great little bit of information to sort of have in, the, have in there. But the, he had a whole room in a more traditional kind of archival sense, right? When you kind of had books and all this other stuff. And that was, I'm really, really interested in the way that what the archive looks like, depending on, I guess, kind of your maybe professional or class status, maybe. What does the archive look like? Maybe changes a bit, which I found really interesting in looking at, in reading your article. But if I, what can I really say on this? Because I mean, the archive that I'm looking at is very much a very traditional sort of boring bureaucratic archive and it's more about the meaning I think that was made of the archive and was kind of actually in it that was what was really interesting I mean one thing I want to note I guess is that a lot of the material that I used is from Nancy Lutton's archive and she's being a librarian and an archivist it's very very well catalogued very well maintained and was deposited with the National Library of Australia so all this story about PNG really um, and about, you know, this saving of PNG's, Papua New Guinea's heritage was told with Australian sources, could be told with Australian sources because it was the Australians who were there, it was the expatriates who were there who were doing this. She kept her records, brought them back to Australia and then deposited them at the National Library. And the rest of the records were either Australian government records or United Nations records, which I was able to access with relatively easily. So it does speak to something about the Western-oriented nature of the archive, even when we're trying to write post-colonial or anti-colonial kind of stories, the way that the Western archive is still quite powerful, but also Lutton's archive is a personal archive, yes, but it also is meticulously involves lots of governmental correspondence. It involves her correspondence with government and involves lots of kind of materials that were collected as a part of the campaign. So certainly her archive is really, I think, blurs the boundaries in a lot of ways between a government and a, and a personal archive. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah, and it kind of made me think about one of the ways in in Kenya that the Mau Mau survivors have entered the the record mm. is through their claim making. So 
this kind of, this has a really long history you know the high court claim obviously is is the one that's really famous and that really sort of entered a massive amount of information about Mau Mau into the public record but also since the 1960s Mau Mau survivors have been writing letters to the government about their experiences of the war and asking for land and financial assistance. And, you know, I found some of these in the Kenyan National Archive. And I think that's an an interesting way where they've kind of been able to write themselves back into into an archive um, where their histories have been removed. And often kind of people were writing in a collective way so writing on the behalf of a group and often people might not have been able to write so they've asked someone else to write for them so there's a quite a collective sense of of history writing back into the archive that yeah again like you're saying blurs the line between the official and personal and and for me at least it feels really poignant in in kind of the context of the history of the Mau Mau archive. And then another way, which I guess is sort of quite close to the Nancy Lutton archive, that we see Mau Mau enter official archives and sort of blur that blur that line, is that a lot of colonial administrators, you know, took their own things home with them. So when they left their postings in Kenya, official records ended up in personal archives, some of which is, are still sort of held by these ex-colonial administrators and their families, and some have ended up in official archives like Bodleian. So they're kind of there are these other archival stowaways that have ended up back in Britain, taken through the colonial administrators. That was what was so interesting, you know, reading some of the literature, particularly like Tim Livesey's work in a few issues back, I think, in History Workshop Journal, is just the fact that kind of everyone knew that the records are taken, right? Like, and this is in the PNG case, obviously, it became a public furor because the government really, really mismanaged. The government really mismanaged their attempts to take these records, almost comically so. But it was really aware. And, you know, as you said, like, I think uh, Carolyn Elkins, when she, you know, actually got into the records, there wasn't an awful lot in the migrated archive that wasn't in, like, as you said, these colonial administrators' collections of people who just kind of made off with archives, like before Trump made it, you know, the scandalous thing to run off with archives. You know, these guys were doing it for, for ages. And it, it does put the light of this idea of secrecy, right? Because almost all of this, <laughs> it wasn't anything too uh, too horrible, I think, in, the, was my, in my understanding of the migrated archive, because so much of it had already been kept by these colonial administrators and had been buried in other files or, or had just popped up in other contexts. So it's um, really kind of what's under possession here. It's, it's not the archive itself. It's kind of the meaning associated maybe with the archive, like when the Papua New Guinea nationalists wrote their correspondence to the UN, because um, New Guinea was a, it's very complicated, but New Guinea is a trust territory under the United Nations. Papua wasn't, but they were treated basically as the same country, same colony by Australia. So sometimes New Guinean laws would apply in Papua, sometimes Papua laws would apply in New Guinea. It was very complex, but basically the nationalist Pangu party was able to make a claim saying these records need to stay here. They didn't really care what was in the records. The, uh, no one really knew what records were actually being taken. And the records that were being made by the Australian administrators may not have even been important. The point was that one of the things that a sovereign nation has is that it has records, right? That it has an archive and that you need to consult the people on the ground. You can't just 
nick the records and run off. They've got to actually consult the decision makers on the ground. And the Pangu party ends up taking only a few months later, um, ends up winning the election, winning the first open election, New Guinea. And that ends up, they end up becoming the, the ruling party afterwards. So obviously the Pangu nationalists saw this as the Australian government trying to hide something from them. There wasn't actually much to hide, I don't think. But it was the fact that it was being done behind their backs, as they put it. This, the decision was being made behind the backs of the Papua New Guinea decision makers that made the archives valuable rather than just the fact, and rather than that, you know, this was this great treasure trove of stuff we were going to lose. It, it was the meaning and the symbolism that seemed to be important. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Mm. Uh, I mean, in in the British case with the migrated archives, that that was an open secret. You know, everyone saw the bonfires and people people kind of knew what was happening at the time. And archivists in the 60s already in Kenya were saying, look, we know these things are missing. We were here when they were taken. And it's only afterwards that they start to sort of develop this bold faced lie where suddenly oh, we don't know where they are, or, oh, I think they've gone missing, or they're lost, or we destroyed all of them. And, you know, it's it's really interesting, sort of the the web of lies that, that really s- becomes as scandalous, almost, not quite, but almost as scandalous as as the act itself. So yeah, Nathan Jammer has, has a really good story about being sent to, by, as, as a, um, a kind of representative of the Kenyan archives. He was sent to the Kenya High Commission for a posting in in the 1980s to go and look for the material. And he was basically sent around the houses by British officials and they were all told, you know, oh, we don't know where it is or it used to be here or we don't have it anymore or it's lost, basically. All the while people did know and it, it was kind of like, hush, hush, let's just let them come and look for it and not find it and then maybe the whole thing will go away. I wonder whether, I mean, this is all such a fantastically rich conversation. What it seems to speak to is about not just archives as institutions and not just archives as collections of documents, but this whole process out of which history is made and and who shapes that and how wide and deep the investment goes. And and both of your papers are ways of reimagining that, I think. And I wondered if 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 you either of you had any kind of closing thoughts about this whole question of the relationship between archives and history making itself. Yeah, I mean, for me, the relationship between archives and history making holds some tension. You know, I think as historians, we're all trained to think critically about the archive, but especially the type of research that I've been doing recently has really encouraged me to think also expansively about what an archive is and whose experiences it can claim to represent. So, yeah, I'm I'm really interested in 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 questioning whether an archive can be more than a set of official documents um, and how people's experiences, their memories and their emotions can can become a part of, of a type of archive that we can access as historians. Yeah, I mean, that's, I was just struck, Rose, by the, in your conclusion, the former Mau Mau leader who cut off her uh, 
the dreadlocks and, and, and contributed them to the national archive like it's a, a remarkable kind of yeah personalization of the of the national archive it kind of reminds me of the weird way in which settler colonies in the 80s and 90s started to dig up remains of unknown soldiers and put them in different kind of sacrosanct sort of places and you know, being like as representative of all the soldiers who died in wars and, and this kind of odd way in which material culture gets kind of fetishized but in this in the yeah in, unfortunately in the in the Papuan case the the records are very official and uh, it's the ways in which those records are contested and emotion and, and become the emotional kind of property of different parties that's really the interesting thing and I mean if there's any closing statement to make I guess is is, is that the it was definitely seen by Papua New Guinean archives and by and Lot and herself noted the importance of the fight that they had in 72 to keep the records because every time they went to regional archive forums, they were told that, you know, the Fijian archives or the Samoan archives had all of the stuff, had a lot of stuff removed. And they could see that there was a lot of removals from their archives and that, that made it very difficult for them, while the PNG records at least still had their records. PNG still had its records. So there was a a sense of um, that they'd fought the good fight. But today, Papua New Guinea's archive, as with many developing nations, um, looking after the archive isn't always the key priority, especially when, you know, there's populations to feed people to educate. The archive ends up not being very well preserved, unfortunately. So one thing that I think the Australian government should really be considering, having left in the end, PNG's archival record in place needs to, the Australian government needs to be, and maybe other colonial governments need to think about this, is how do they maintain those records in their former colonies and how do they ensure that those those records are being maintained in ways that are going to ensure that they actually survive? Because they are quite important. You know, some of the records are the only source that's available for Papua and Papua New Guineans about who owns what in particular villages. Like this was, it was the Australian patrol officers who visited and drew maps. They're the only talk of an oral culture, Papua very much an oral culture. Um, the only written records that exist of property ownership are from the 60s and 70s when Australian patrol officers visited and then drew lines around whose land was what in particular Papuan villages. And those are the records, those records are absolutely vital for people today. So they go back and they visit those to say, like, oh, well, this is where my land ends and where your land ends. But there's no other kind of physical record of those. So they are very important. And unfortunately, the popular records are in somewhat of a perilous shape. So it's kind of the responsibility of former colonizers to do something about the state of records, I think, as well. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about the responsibilities of former colonizers. In the Kenyan context, there's been such a strong link between the archives and justice movements, both in the sense that this migrated archive was key evidence when Mau Mau survivors brought a court case against the British government. And also there are these continuing campaigns for repatriation. Uh, But it is really important to think about whether repatriation on its own would really would really function and what other provisions that you might call operations or you might call restorative justice would go with a repatriation of the records to Kenya. So, you know, it's not just about 
um, returning the material, it's also about protecting it and ensuring that it remains intact as much as possible and that it doesn't end up being harmed in the process of of return. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great way to end it. And it rose. I mean, it makes me think of you know, the British who sprayed them all with insecticides, and then now all the records are, are kept away because people will get like killed by them. <laughs> it's like, well, who's looking after the records being well looked after where they are? <laughs> it's like, what's going on? Many thanks to John Pacini and Rose Mayunga for taking part in this conversation. You can learn more about them and find links to their articles on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on X at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. We'll be back in 2024 with a season full of new episodes. Till then, this is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.